You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you want to listen on to find out what he has to say about investing in Melbourne. All the different price points. We spoke before, or I think it might have been before we started, um, Chris, about the uh, multifaceted demand being a really important part to investing in property. You need to have, you don't want to just have one buyer profile being interested in, in your type of property, and that's probably what you do get when you're in some of the middle and outer ring suburbs. If you're not getting a home buyer and you're not getting a developer, there's really not going to be anyone else. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp, and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we picked the brains of Jared McCabe, Director of Wakeland's Property Advisory. Now, Wakeland specialises in the investor market in Melbourne, and Jared runs a team of property advisors. Wakeland's have been around for decades, and Jared's been there eight and a half years, but he started his career as a valuer almost 20 years ago. Now, he knows the Melbourne market, and we look forward to going deeper today into the inner workings of Australia's most livable city and the city that just lost the title of the world's most livable city. <laughs> Welcome, Jared. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Veronica. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jared. Appreciate you being here, mates. Um, now, I, I guess it, we haven't had that many buyers agents on here. And um, you know what I do love about talking to buyers agents is we can actually start talking about what's a good asset and what's not a good asset. We can have pretty intelligent conversations and go deeper. Can you give us a bit more of an understanding of it, you know, because you guys focus mainly on investors, yep. you know, what are the assets in Melbourne that investors are buying? And that's key, the key to it, I guess, is to establish what the point of the purchase is. So is it a lifestyle purchase or is it an investment purchase? So get that um, organised with the client first and foremost. But once that's done, um, if it's from an investment perspective, there's typically two main elements that we're, we're looking for for our clients being a scarcity value of the property. So something that's not being replicated and having more and more of the same thing being built. So obviously you're off the plan type apartments, townhouses, that sort of thing where there is more and more construction. Um, but also a strong underlying land value uh, component to it. And that's why we typically focus in the inner suburbs of Melbourne, not the, the CBD itself, but that sort of 10K radius, 12K radius of the city mm-hmm. um, where you do get a strong land value component um, with a particular type of property. Okay. And what price points are we talking about in Melbourne? Typically between 500000 up to about $1.5 million. Once you get up towards that sort of 1.4, 1.5, the question then needs to be asked, should you be buying multiple properties as opposed to having all of your uh, income or your money tied up in a single asset? And I guess you're servicing, you know, your cost to run that property starts getting tougher because your rents don't go up as a... Not necessarily. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it also diversifies your risk as well, but being able to, if, if something does change in financial circumstances, rather than having to perhaps sell one asset, you could just maybe sell um, one out of the two and um, and still continue to retain perhaps one of the others. But as long as you're buying two good properties rather than uh, 
Yeah, that's you know. right, and it's that's why you if you if you're up at the one point five mark, that's why the, the it's a good um, question to be asked then because you can also diversify not just geographically but with the style of the property. So perhaps buy a, a little house for around a million dollars in a suburb like Brunswick, and then perhaps buy a, a good one bedroom apartment for around five hundred thousand in a in a Hawthorne type area. So you mm-hmm. then get diversity both from a geographic sense, but also from a type of property as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting actually because I, you know, I'm obviously from Sydney and so I see the similar characteristics yep. of the inner suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne um, and I'm often saying that they're the two safest areas in which to actually invest in property Absolutely. in Australia. Um, now, you can obviously invest in Melbourne in a safe area with a lot less money than you can in Sydney yes. still because you certainly don't hear 500000 being being mentioned in Sydney so that's certainly heartening for investors. Um, now, but the thing that Melbourne has that Sydney doesn't have is it a much higher or a larger amount of oversupplied areas in terms of yep. new apartments, right? Yes, that's right. So you're talking about apartments, say, in Hawthorne. How do you determine, A, the location and B, the type of property that you might encourage an investor to buy if it's an apartment? And that's a really good question, Veronica, because of the apartment market quite often gets grouped into being one holistic mm. um, sector of the market. And there's there's very much different parts to it. And we steer very well clear of the more modern, larger developments. Um, obviously, it's pretty clear the um, the high-rise sector when you're in the South Bank, St Kilda Road, Docklands type areas are certainly areas to be avoided. But you do have to look at areas such as, say, parts of South Yarra, uh, and even now out as far as Box Hill, Doncaster, and down towards Dandenong, that they're sort of sub um, suburbs and, and almost mini CBDs that are being constructed with some fairly significant buildings in those areas. So you have to worry about that sort of thing. So we typically focus more on boutique type developments when we are looking at an apartment and it's something that's perhaps only two or three stories in terms of its construction size. Um, And something that's in a quiet residential street, we typically avoid main roads, that sort of thing. And with apartments, it's a non-negotiable to to have car parking. You must have an off-street, allocated off-street car space. So they're really important characteristics. And then being in a quiet residential street and an area that's well-serviced by... um, both public transport and some form of local village because that, um, that, that village feel is a, a really strong draw card for people in Melbourne. Yeah. When you talk about the outer suburbs and these places like Box Hill, it astounds me that they're building, you know, 30, 40 storey yeah. high rises, 30, 40 k's from the city. And that's not just in Box Hill. There's places like Clayton and yeah. Chadston. You know, there's these areas where they're building, you know, lots of apartments and a lot of investors have been caught up buying these through kind of developers because they're really, really cheap, right? And they get quite often get sold with, um, with a, a very uh, persuasive marketing proposal that includes all the depreciation benefits and all those sorts of things that come with it, which um, for those in the know, realise that they're actually reasons not to be purchasing the yes. property because yeah. that's the reason that... Um, that warning, warning, yeah, warning, exactly. warning. Most of, yeah. the, most of the value is actually in the actual improvements themselves. Yeah. And by nature of the depreciation benefits, the majority of what you've just bought is going down in value as opposed to appreciating, which is what you should be focusing on. And that's, that's why we like that underlying land component, whether it's an apartment or whether it's a house, that strong underlying notional land component is really important. Uh, and yeah. that's where you'll get the appreciation, even with a, an older style apartment. Because a lot of the units that aren't great assets in Melbourne haven't gone up in the last 10 years. You know, even though the market's boomed, we had the biggest investment boom, you know, in recent memory, but all time low interest rates, but everything you could possibly think that should push the market up has happened. Yep. And a lot of properties haven't gone up. So if they haven't gone up in, under those conditions, yeah. What are the what are they going to do when the conditions aren't like that? You know, borrowing capacity is going down, investors are pulling out, interest rates are going up. Um, if they, and if they haven't performed in perfect conditions, 
you know, it's not going to look good for the next five years. Mm. Do you think though, because a lot of investors and people who have had these off the plan apartments, do you feel like that it's getting out there? Do you think people are getting it and that society's kind of becoming a bit more savvy and a lot of investors are, are, are not falling for it? And, or do you think that, you know, that There'll always be somebody that falls for it. <laughs> there will always be some, but I think people are starting to get a little bit more savvy. I'm not mm. convinced it's enough yet, okay. um, but I think that there is becoming just a bit more knowledge and there's becoming a few more war stories, I guess, that are getting out there of people that have unfortunately suffered from buying um, poor properties that have actually not just not increased, but they've actually backwards. decreased in value and gone yeah. backwards. And in it fact, happens quite regularly. Well, BIS Oxford actually did some research and showed I think between 2011 and 2016, nearly 50% of resales, so the first sale of yep. new property in Melbourne, sold a loss. Yeah, and that does not surprise mm. me at all. I mean, it's you see it time and time again. We quite regularly um, talk to clients or prospective clients, potentially people who have purchased or bought off the plan and, and want to get rid of those assets because they've, they've realised that they're not performing how they should mm. be. And trying to sell them when you go back into the marketplace because oh, yeah. then there's the depreciation benefits are no longer there anymore for the second time purchaser. So there's not really um, a great benefit to, to buying those sorts of properties. The, the yield is typically one of the reasons why people might look to that. But with that modern off the plan sector, because there is so much stock available and there's so much choice, even the yields aren't necessarily as strong as what you mm. would want them to be. Oh, I mean, it's a really good point around trying to sell it because you know, you've made your decision um, and then you own it and then you, and generally people, you know, want to prove themselves right. So they don't, you know, they, even though they subconsciously know they've made a bad decision and they should have done, they didn't do enough research. They didn't speak to enough people. They rushed it. You know, they know that. And then, but they'll wait. Right. Yeah. And so you hold on to it because you hope that things will come better and you'll be proved wrong, which is right. <laughs> and then when you actually go to sell it, um, you know, the hard part is, is now it's actually a challenge to sell it because you've got, because it's a poor asset, you know, mm. there's other poor assets selling as well and they can't get, and it's a real stress and this yeah. could go on for years and years. And so what happens to people at that point is they go, well, I'll just hold it. Yeah. And then what happens is there's an opportunity cost of holding this asset. Can't do anything asset. else with their money. That's yeah, right. yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And yeah. so this, it, it's not just making a bad decision. Like if you buy some shares and you, you, you don't like them anymore or you, you know, they've gone down, you throw them on the stock exchange and they're gone yep. and life, you move on with your life with property. You just can't do it. A lot less money involved in buying shares than there is, you know, property. buying property. Yeah. yeah, And it's such an expensive exercise to go through the process to buy yeah. it. So it needs to be the right decision. Now, the apartment market's been interesting in the last few years and it's interesting at the moment. I mean, in, particularly in Melbourne. So the it's been obviously, particularly the, the newer stuff has been um, quite average in terms of its performance. Some of the older style apartments haven't probably seen the growth that um, people may have liked them to see. But the interesting fact at the moment in Melbourne is that the, the demand for apartments is actually greater than what it is for houses. And if you look at the clearance rate and things at the moment, it's sitting 4 and 5% above the standard clearance rates for apartments. So wow. it's the demand is there and there's actually been some some a bit of growth in that apartment sector and it's driven more by the the um, older style apartments. That yeah. includes villa units as well though within the, the clearance rates. Yeah. And they're the ones that are probably contributed to that as well. The villa units have, have certainly helped kick things along. So if we dig into that a little bit, you know, I'm wondering, is that because the villa units and townhouses, that's a more affordable option and it's like the, you know, people can't afford a house can't afford that, and so that's that that stopgap, and so there's there's increasing demand. Certainly, that's happening in Sydney. Yeah. Um, but also the type of property, the type of apartment that will go to auction, is very different to the oversupplied stock. That's right. So there's there's exactly a bit right. of a 
you know, there's, there's um, the, the composition of this data is different. That's though. right. So the, the yeah. modern, and that's why it's, it is a, actually a reasonable reflection of it because the off the plan or the modern, the high rise, the oversupplied sector of the apartment market won't go to auction. No. It will sell via private sale because that's going to be the best method of sale for that type of property. So it does show you with, with the clearance rate that it is actually reflective more of that right type of property. Mm. Not necessarily all of them, but certainly some of them. Um, that there is reasonable demand. And the main driver for that at the moment is really the first home buyers. Yeah, um, okay. And they're moving yeah. into that space because it's a, an affordable option, mm. both from a villa unit, but from an established apartment point of view, to be able to retain a lifestyle by being close to the city yeah. without having to compromise by moving too far out and still be able to get into the market. Makes sense mm. to me. Yeah. Oh. And I mean, I think that one of the things I love, everyone loves about Melbourne, you know, if they come on Mel Melbourne for a weekend away or they live here, you know, Melbourne, without doubt, I think it's got you know, very beautiful streets. Yeah. And I think it's probably gives Sydney a run for its money and probably beats Sydney. Um, you know, where you go down, <laughs> and, you know, you go down areas like, you know, North Fitzroy. Yes. And you've got beautiful old frontages, trees. Hawthorne. Yeah, Hawthorne. And you've got, you know, amazing mm. frontages and they've been around, you know, they're 100 years old. and We've got been nice renovated. suburbs in Sydney too, remember? Yeah, there is. <laughs> but, um, you know, I don't think on a beauty. And I, I mean, I guess it's each individual style. But, you know, I, I kind of feel like that, one of the signs of success of someone in Melbourne, you know, as soon as they start doing quite well, um, they all kind of want that really nice frontage and they all want that kind of heritage frontage. And there's only so many heritage frontages mm. and it's, it's like this kind of, you know, ingrained in their psyche yep. that as soon as I start earning good money, we get a nice house and we get a nice frontage. Yep. You know, is that really kind of what happens? Consistency of streetscape in and around the inner city suburbs is really important from an architectural style perspective. And it's it's a real draw card. I mean, there's streets around Melbourne. Like if you ever get a chance to drive down Cambridge Street in Armidale, it is just row after row of single-fronted weatherboard Edwardian houses. And that is just stunning. And it's been used in the past in movie sets and things because it is so consistent. Um, so streets like that are are absolutely amazing and are really important uh, and people do value that so and then you can go to areas like Carlton where it's row after row of terrace houses mm. or you can drive around Alfred Crescent opposite Edinburgh Gardens and there's there's um, two-story terraces and things there or going to East Melbourne and get the same type of thing so that that quality of streetscape is a really a valued thing and, and it is highly sought after but you can still go into other areas where it might be a little bit more mixed but then that can be the the um, the draw card that people like so Thornbury mm. is a suburb for instance um, has got a lot of period homes but it's also got a lot of 60s and 70s type houses that have been constructed over the years as well. And so because that era, the retro fit out, the 50s, 60s style is quite popular at the moment as well, that's now starting to become a draw card too. And suburbs like, say, Reservoir, where there's a lot of 50s houses um, and there's some fantastic streets in areas like that where it's more of that 50s style of house feels like a bit of an open garden because they've got the low brick fences across the front of them. So you drive down the street and it almost feels like a bit of a garden setting mm. with these really attractive um, blonde brick houses. Uh, it's huge about Thornbury there. And I mean, Northcote, same sort of, you know, area, I guess. You know, a lot of the, the planning and the council, though, won't allow things to be built that aren't attractive, right? Yeah. You know, and in, in these kind of inner ring suburbs, you know, they want. <laughs> Do you know what? I think that's a fundamentally must be the difference between Sydney and Melbourne then, because Sydney has councils that will let all sorts of crap be built. Oh, no, that, that happens around Melbourne. It's just you've been, uh, certain councils are better at it than yeah, others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is exactly. I mean, in Sydney, there's like uh, Canada Bay Council, I think is a great example of 
oh my god, like beautiful period homes that all been knocked down now, and and horrible monstrosities being built. Whereas across the river there, you got Haberfield, which is heritage listed back in 1985, and it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, you yeah. know. And I know it had a, it was originally a garden suburb, and so it had sort of better foundations in many respects. But if if that had been respected at some point in some of those other areas, yeah. you know, the, the whole general amenity of the area and the value of the area I think would be higher. And I think that's – I think there'll be some um, regret in some ways mm. going forward, particularly with that 50-60 style because still at the moment that um, is being – is very easily to demolish. And, and yeah. suburbs like, say, North Baldwin, mm. there's been a lot of good quality – 50s houses, orange, blonde brick type houses yeah. that have been knocked over for the monstrosities to be constructed. Yeah. And they would have been better built too, I reckon. Oh, far yeah. better built. And they'll be, and that's the thing, you'll get to a few years down the track and it's starting to happen now where they are actually a really popular house. Mm. Yeah. But there's not yeah. going to be many of them left. But yeah. that, And that's why I mentioned Reservoir before. It's probably got a bit more, it's retained it. Now, not necessarily deliberately, but there is a lot more of that there. And hopefully it, it continues to do that because I really think it's a, it'll be a sought-after housing style going forward. Yeah, because the, the value then is also in a street where everything's been retained, isn't yes. it? Because, you know, if, if you get these yeah. few horrible ones popped up in the middle, it ruins actually the whole aesthetic the whole of the whole scale. street. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's sort of in terms of like Northcote, in terms of, you know, they're making sure that if anyone is going to knock down something, you know, we're still going to keep a beautiful street. And mm. what you do is you create, you still keep this scarcity and this, this livability and desirability. Yeah. But when you do go to the middle and the outer suburbs, um, you just don't know what's going to happen next no. door, right? Mm. You yeah. just never know. And you could just get a whole run of six, you know, cookie cutter townhouses, yeah. you right, know, right and, yep. um, you know, I guess when you're talking about scarcity, you know, that's the things that you really want to focus on is, is things that kind of are going to stay the same and, and really kind of. That's right. And keep that consistency of streetscape. It's and a paradox it's, though, isn't it? Because you've gone scarcities. <laughs> the real scarce one is the one that's left <laughs> yeah. versus having actually one in good company with a street full. So the, the street becomes a scarcity factor. It's a, yeah, yeah, it is. And it is more, it's more yeah. that sort of thing, I guess. But then it, it gets down further to not just being um, that's that style of house, but does the property and the floor plan have the right yes. layout to become yeah, scarce yeah. as well? Or yeah. is it? Does it become anomalous because it's got um, a poor floor plan? Yeah. There's a, a room, a bedroom put on as a mezzanine yeah. level or tucked at the back that then has compromised the rest of the property. So yeah. all those sorts of things come into play when you're wanting to make sure that you're getting the best property you can. Yeah, it's so important. Floor plan is underrated. I think know, so and, too. But, and often it's a real subconscious reaction that buyers have to a good floor plan. They don't know why they like it necessarily, yeah. but we do. Just we works. go through and go, yeah. we know why that works. Yeah. But, yeah, it's amazing how the difference it can make. Absolutely. Mm. And the north facing in Melbourne, obviously it gets a bit chilly. And, um, <laughs> Very important. You know, in Sydney it might not matter as much, but do you find that, you know, on one side of the street versus the other side of the street, the north facing is important? Yeah, yeah. and it is. It, it, I guess it, again, then depends on the type of property. So if you're looking at more of a family home where you've perhaps on five, six, seven hundred square metres of land, then that north facing rear, because the majority of the house can be oriented that mm. way. So that can be great. And certainly with apartments and villa units, having that coming in. Yeah. With a terrace house or a cottage, the interesting thing there is you're actually probably better having an east-west facing because the majority of your windows mm. are down the side of the property. Mm. You want to so, be the north side semi. Yeah. yeah. So then you've yeah. got then if, if you've got an east and west oriented mm. block, you've then got the wind the the north light coming into your windows on that that mm. orientation. If so you get the right side of the semi. If you get the right side, <laughs> yeah, and that's that's exactly right. Yeah, so yeah. and then it, that but that can be really important. But it's yeah, a good the point. north facing is is always a sought after thing. Mm. Um, and if you can get that, it will certainly help out. I guess he, he, uh, here's a tip for buyers too, because 
quite often agents will advertise a house as north facing <laughs> yeah. and they mean the front. The front. Yeah. The front. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. That doesn't matter. That's and also if you're facing. buying in summer and you're not thinking about it, you can yeah. you can inadvertently buy what you think is a north facing house. You haven't even really worked it out. And you went in winter you another difference. I was gonna say the same <laughs> thing, you know. That's what I've seen. I've said, Oh, north facing house and you know, you go look at the map and you go, that's not north facing. And, you know, for our listeners here, you want the backyard to yes. be facing yes. north, not yep. the front of the property. The yep. interesting thing, though, that can be sometimes, so you mentioned before, Chris, about Northgate and Thornbury, that sort of thing. And if you get up onto Ruckers Hill in that part of the world, the south side of the street might be more valuable because if you're elevated enough, you could have a view back to the ah, city. Ah, yes. So there can be other factors at play that might drive growth, mm. um, or sorry, not drive, but drive demand for that type of property. Well, that's mm -hmm. what drives growth, though. That, well, that's true. Yeah. The demand yeah. that flows onto that. Yeah. So, um, but being on that, having that that aspect with some of the properties, and they've got some stunning, some of the views that you get in uh, in and around Northcote there on top yep. of the hill are, can be gorgeous back at the uh, CBD. Good reason yeah. to buy a south-facing Pardon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are very similar drivers that we've got in, in Sydney. There's no doubt about it. Um, although we do have warmer winters. <laughs> <laughs> you do, and you have much better beaches too. I'll concede that as well. Do you know what? I, I would happily live in Melbourne, but sort of my life is in Sydney. It's a bit of a shame. And I have to start, I'd have to start from scratch if I moved down here. You yeah. know, like I, I know everything about the Sydney, Sydney market. market yep. yeah. yeah, I have to start from scratch. But, you know, maybe one day I'll give it a shot. Yeah, I mean, so in Melbourne, um, you know, there's certain pockets in Sydney that you would just avoid and, you know, it's pretty obvious you wouldn't want to invest there, you know, maybe around the airport because, yeah. you know, there's lots of apartments getting built. Now, where are some of the pockets you think in Melbourne right now where, you know, quite worry you, you know, maybe it's outer suburbs, house and land packages, maybe it's outer ring suburbs. You're not meant to... You know, words in his mouth, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I mean, the, 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 the quite obvious ones are obviously the high-rise type sector, so South Banks and Kilda Road, Docklands, the CBD itself, um, because there is still a lot of construction in the pipeline there. Lots been approved. Whether it will actually go ahead and come out of the ground will be another matter. Um, the off-the-plan uh, house land packages are always a concern because, again, there's an endless supply. As soon as demand even remotely gets close to meeting the supply yeah. levels, there's typically another land release. Um, and there's that's the, been the thing with Melbourne. If you drive out towards um, Melton, Bacchus, Marsh, Ballarat, um, when I was a kid coming in from Horsham to, uh, to Melbourne, it used to be that um, there was a very clear distinction between where Melton was and where Melbourne started. And it's <laughs> becoming far more blurred than what it used to be. I wow. mean, around Rockbank with the amount of um, estates that are going up in and around there, uh, there's huge amounts of, uh, of land available. I saw one advertised in the paper this week that said that there was going to be um, land available around Melton for $150,000 um, to be able to construct homes and things on coming yeah. forward. And that's, that's, that's great from an affordability perspective. So for, for those that perhaps want to be there from a lifestyle point of view, um, that's fine, but it's something to be very, very wary of when, if it's from an investment perspective. And when you say from a lifestyle point of view, you're just basically saying they're buying a home. Correct. But in reality, from a lifestyle point of view, to buy a $150,000 block of land, you're only really buying it because it's affordable, right? You're not that's actually right. buying it for lifestyle. You're buying it because you want to be able to get yourself into the property market. And you yeah. buy, and whether that's that's the right thing to do would depend on your own circumstances. And I think but that sort of is an interesting question, isn't it? That whole idea about you know affordability is so important because people have a right to be able to afford a home. And yet, Go, there you go, there's a $150,000 block of land, you can afford that. But then I've got my home all right, but is it going to go up in value? Yeah. You know, am I, you know, what if I get divorced and I have to sell it? Or, you know, what if 
I don't know. But, I mean, all these what ifs. That's there are more so, questions. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's a debate, and this is the elephant in the room. And it's an elephant. I think we need to talk about is that is all property worth buying? Correct. Yeah, yeah. and I agree. Yeah, so that's I think a good you know if you are. You know, the, we naturally have got this history of 20 years of property market booming, you know, one salary to two salaries, you know, low interest rates, rent is dead money, you know, your grandparents, yep. your parents. Um, and so what people do is they naturally think I've got to go and buy a house. I've got to get something in the market. I can't possibly re-rent. Um, and what I, I don't think a lot of people realize is when they're buying in these suburbs is, you know, just because things have gone up in the past or et cetera, doesn't mean that, yep. you know, they're going to go up in the future. And yeah, you know, when you do look at a satellite of these areas, um, you know, and you said that the lines are getting blurred, mm. Mm. there's still, you know, farms and farms and farms yep. that. Where are know, we going to get fed from? Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, that, you know, there's never going to be a shortage of housing like there in our lifetime, mm. I don't believe. No. Um, and if you go the other side of Melbourne down the kind of the southeast, you know, there's still, you know, Cranbourne Way and farms and farms. And, farms. Yeah. and they're going to keep building and they're going to keep building. And, um, you know, the problem is with this is the block sizes are very small. They are. Um, yep. You know, you're living on top of each other and it's cheap and cheerful and there's another estate coming on. There's so, no infrastructure. And... Um, yeah, the infrastructure is a big thing, mm. I think, too. I mean, particularly from a public transport perspective. I mean, the, and the, the roads just get more and more congested yeah. out those ways. I mean, you only have to look at, say, Point Cook as an estate and the, the, the line up of cars coming out of that estate in the mornings yeah. to get onto the freeway. Um, because it's only like a single lane road, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and you think even the foresight to not actually build the road wide enough to actually accommodate all the cars because there's no – well, there's a train there because it goes on the way to Geelong, north. isn't it? It's through the oh, – I think it? it's yeah. the other side of the freeway, is it? Being tucked in there, I'm not 100 percent on that. You know, I believe it is. Because, to the no, no, it is because the, the train station. There's the new train station there mm. that's, that's right next to the freeway. So no, yeah. it is on the other side. It's right there. But for those that would that are down on the southernmost points of mm. Point Cook, you're not going to be walking from there up to the train station. No, yeah, it's yeah, anyway. That's look. look uh, you said something earlier about um, apartments and uh, the deal breaker or, or the non-negotiable is a car space. Yes. Now I am seeing in Sydney and in, in some of the inner areas that. Um, Car space is sort of diminishing in value, actually, because, you know, Gen Y are happy to use go-gets and, in fact, a lot don't even bother getting a um, – yeah, yeah, and and also they can walk to the city from there. Yep. Are there spots in Melbourne where you would think, actually, that it will come to a point where the actual car space is not such a deal-breaker? No, I don't believe so. I, I think with uh, with apartments, it's still a, a really important aspect, particularly from an investment point of view, because by nature you're going to have multiple – a lot of people living in that area. Um, and so street parking for those that perhaps do need it is not going to be um, feasible and they're not going to be comfortable with that. And particularly from an investment point of view, I guess what you want is to have as many people as possible interested in your property so that it creates mm, that absolutely. demand and com- yep. creates that push up. Mm. And if by not having a car space, you perhaps reduce your potential buyers at an auction by one or two, then mm. it's going to have an impact on that yep. in value. So. Mm. By by not having a car space, um, you can really can really impact on. I mean, East Melbourne would be the prime example, for instance, yep. of perhaps I I don't need a car space here mm. because I can walk to everything. Yeah. Um, yep. But there, I've seen instances where there's been one bedroom Art Deco apartments selling there in the same block where one with a car space sells for um sorry one without a car space sells for around seven fifty and one without a car space goes for over a million dollars. And with a car space, mm. so, so with yeah. So, so it's funny because then people try to say, well, what's a car space worth? And you go, well, here you go, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. But in that spot, but is it yeah, really, or is exactly. it just that you just didn't have the buyers? And that's where yeah. it sort of it comes to, well, is it because of the it's car space or is it? Just you've lost out on a couple of buyers because they haven't been interested yeah. because of that reason. And I think mm. that's part of it. 
comes back down to the value, doesn't it? I yep. mean, it's 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 these sort of curly you questions. Go around yeah, around yeah. Ch- chicken and egg sort yeah. of things. Yeah. <laughs> I guess um, one thing that I've been thinking about a bit as well is that I um, you know, I did go. I went to my nana's last night, and she lives in the suburbs. And oh. end of the end of the playing, you know, Chinese checkers and um, and <laughs> fun. A good grandson. That's right. Exactly. Um, and um, yeah, so she lives in Glen Waverley, right? Yep. And so you know, I jumped on the train last night. This train was shocker block. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, it was peak hour. It was like five fifteen or something yep. like that. Um, but everyone, I, luckily I got on the train before everyone else, just, you know, lucky and I got a seat, but no one else did really. Mm. And this train was busy all the way to the end of the line. Right. And no one was sitting down the whole way and just going 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even if you have a train line, it's not a very comfortable journey. Well, that's right. Unless you get on the very end of it or you get on the very beginning. Glen Waverley's not even not considered to be an outer suburb. So it's not like you're going out. Right out to the outskirts of Melbourne with yeah. the suburb, you're still inside East Link. Um, yeah, that's right. And I, I just, I guess, I look reflect on my nana's property and um, just seeing how much has gone up, right? And you know, you know, six, well, I say five years ago, it was probably worth five hundred, and now it's probably worth one point one. Yeah, you don't now, mention their front. Um, and the reason why it's worth one point one, house, it's a house. Yep, yep. She's uh, lived there for thirty nine years. Mm-hmm. Hasn't been renovated for thirty nine years. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's a seven hundred square meter block. Yeah. And the reason it's worth, you know, 1.1 million is because developers would come in and put three townhouses on it. Yeah. Right. Um, what about the Chinese buyers there? Because I've got cousins who sold out of Glen Waverley a few years ago and they're a bit older than me, these cousins, the same age as my parents, you know, they're in their 70s, right? Um, and they, you know, they're full of those stories of the Chinese buyers coming in and their agent found a Chinese buyer that, that offered 200 grand more than all the other locals. So, the, you know, you know, the locals born and bred locals weren't prepared to pay the money and it was, yeah, there was a 200 grand difference. Yeah, I just wonder, like, in terms of the middle ring kind of development and knocking down building townhouses and have you have you seen any kind of problems with kind of people, you know, young first-home buyers buying in there for a million dollars, not knowing that things are inflated right now because developers are... They do. I mean, but developers have been in that space for a fair period of time now. And so that in a lot of instances, it's probably the market's moved with them um, and people have benefited from that too. And it's not just solely driven by developers either. There are um, single homes. So those sites that are being used for single family homes that are being constructed. So it is still land value in that the house is not being retained, but it's not always for perhaps three three townhouses to go up. Sometimes it's just for a single dwelling to be mm. constructed on mm. that site. Um, and it can be a, a $1.1 million Land, land component and then quite regularly spend a similar amount of money on constructing a, a fairly large home on the same site too. So, yeah, so, is, that, so is that had a recent zoning change, that area? No, it's just that it's, I, I just kind of, it's a long way from the city, right? We're talking 35, 40 Ks and, you know, we're talking prices, you know, over a million. Um, and this is just a pretty suburbs area. Well, and that's, that's considered middle ring, is it? Yeah, well, it well, is. Well, inside, inside East Link is really st- now becoming, I mean, it wasn't um, in the last, sort of 10, 10 years ago, you would yeah. have called Glenway, but it's it's not far off it now because there is, but there's been so much development yeah. outside of that. Um, <laughs> and it just continues to go. And it's God. the same if you go out to the western suburbs, mm. that there's been more and more construction going on out that way. And so what was considered outer suburbs, um, uh, and that's, I guess, where you start to talk with first home buyers too about expectations around what they can and mm. where they can buy. Um, and perhaps where their parents bought when they did, but 
So, for instance, I always think of my wife and her um, her parents. They bought in what was Burnwood at the time when it was rezoned and re- boundaries were changed a few years ago. It became Camberwell. But when they bought that back in the 70s, that was on the fringes of Melbourne. There mm. wasn't a lot past that. Um, yeah. And so it was right on the outskirts. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's I guess, the, the differences today that it is, it, although it looks like it's a, a really close inner suburb and it is now, it wasn't back then. It's all perception. Yeah, and I guess it's just the issue. The issue I kind of see happening is that, um, you know, every kilometre isn't just a kilometre. You know, it's a kilometre all around the onion. So yep. north, south, east, west. Mm. And, you know, if you think about the city like a, like an onion, every time you go another kilometre, there's an extra ring, it's an extra ring. And yep. what I'm, I've yep. kind of seen been noticing in Melbourne is a lot of the middle and outer ring is extremely expensive. And the difference between the cost of buying out there versus buying, you know, somewhere closer to the city like a, a Northcote or a Brunswick or Yarraville yep. isn't that much. Um, you know, we're not talking from a price point of view that big. Are we talking about Apple and Apple though? Are we talking similar size house? No, we're not. Yeah. So you're talking, like you said, Chris, you, mm. your, your grandmother's property being on 700 square metres in Glen Waverley. Glen Waverley for around $1.1 million. If you compare that to Brunswick for a $1.1 million house, you'd be yeah. 180 or so, yeah, 200 yeah. square metres for a yeah. single front cottage or terrace. But it's it's relative, I guess, to what is the norm for that suburb. Yeah. So the, the 180, 200, 220 square metres in Brunswick is fairly okay. typical. Mm. Um, 700, 600 square metres in Glen Waverley is pretty it, we, we've got the same thing sitting as you can go further out. It's not going to cost you much, you know, less to buy a house necessarily within, you know, before you go too far out. Within reason, you're just going to get a lot more for your money. And I mean, yeah. if you want to do it on an even smaller scale, if you look at, we were talking before about Northcote and Thornbury, um, you can spend $1.2 million in Thornbury and get close to 300 square metres. You can mm. spend $1.2 million in Northcote, which is only one suburb yeah. that long, but a ring a little bit further in. And you'll probably get only 160, 170 um, square metres. Mm. So that's where the, the difference comes in. So you're buying, spending the same amount of money, but just getting a bit more bang for your buck. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it's just, you know, where you've got to be really careful of what you're actually getting, right? So, you know, I'm getting 700 square metres, you know, of land. I'm getting an old house. Yep. You know, it's a million dollars. You know, it's 35Ks from the city. Yep. Um, you know, and I guess it's just whether that stays, keeps its value long term and, and, are you actually getting something that's actually scarce? I guess that's the – I kind of just feel like yeah. when I look at the outer suburbs, I kind of like, you know, people are thinking I'm getting this and it's great and I'm getting 700 square metres of land, but is it still going to be scarce? Well, they're far more susceptible, those middle and outer ring suburbs, to ups and downs in the market yeah. than what the um, the single-fronted cottages, terrace houses are in the inner suburbs. Yeah. Because yeah. there's we, – we spoke before, or I think it might have been before we started, um, Chris, about the – uh, multifaceted demand being a really important part to investing in property. You mm-hmm. need to have, you don't want to just have one buyer profile being interested in, in your type of property. And that's probably what you do get when you're in some of the middle and outer ring suburbs. If you're not getting a home buyer and you're not getting a developer, there's really not going to be anyone else. Mm. Um, yeah. And you'll rule out developers if the improvements are in reasonable condition yeah. because they're not yeah. going to be prepared to knock it over. Whereas if you go into, say, that single-fronted cottage and perhaps even, and even to a certain extent the older style apartments and the villa units, you can have... Um, First home buyers, you can have investors, you can have downsizers, you can have people that might want it for a town base because it is close to services and that sort of thing. So that multifaceted demand um, means that if one sector of that market is down for whatever particular reason, and at the moment we're seeing that investors aren't really yep. in that space, yep. it still means you've got another sector of the market that's going to have interest in that property and you've got far greater chance of that being pushing up the value and even in a flatter time having reasonable interest in that property. Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly right, isn't it? It's understanding the demand, who actually wants to own it yeah. um, and live in it and 
rent it and you know, a lot of people don't really think that through. They just think, oh, okay, yeah, I can rent it, but who to? And yeah. what are they going to earn? And yeah. what are they going to do for work? And you know, Are they going to look after my property? Because I've spent a hell yes. of a lot of money buying this and I want to have someone that's going to, to look after it. And I mean, it's not going to be the same as if it was their own, but you still want someone who's going to have a healthy respect for, for, the, prop, for the property that you've invested in. And that is one of the biggest fears of a lot of investors is that they worry about, you know, am I going to get a tenant? You know, am mm. I going to get, and that's Big fear, right? Because if it's if you're paying, you know, a big mortgage, you want to make sure you're getting a tenant. And then they don't trash it. Yeah, um, that was going to be my point. Not just am I going to get a tenant, but am I going to get the right tenant? Yeah. Mm. And that's why the, one of the benefits of, um, you know, sometimes people push this quantity strategy, right? You know, yeah. buy lots of cheap properties <laughs> all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that does come with that is, you know, generally speaking, you're buying, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you're buying subprime property. You're not buying great properties in great locations. And then sometimes you have, you know, your tenant issues do rise and mm-hmm. yep. um, you don't get competition for tenants. You can't put your rent up. But the biggest thing is you start getting issues with, you know, you know, the keeping the. Well, the re- there's a reason those sorts of properties have a higher yield. It's because they're a riskier asset. Yes. And that's the same with any investment asset class is that typically the higher yield, the riskier the asset. And you'll get a, and it's the same when you move into say service department, student accommodation, that sort of thing, they're a riskier asset. And mm-hmm. so you're going to have a much higher yield. And as well, we're always with, with our philosophy around investing, it's very much quality over quantity. You're much better off having two or three high quality investment properties than having double figures. Yeah. yeah. 100% agree on that one. It, it's, it is interesting because I, I do hear so many stories of people who, who have gone down that path of the, the quantity over quality and then they, they have absolutely underestimated the headaches that can come with that. Because not only do you have problems with tenants, but you have problems with property managers mm. because it, a quality property manager doesn't typically want to work in an office or an area that has a lot of that substandard stock that they have to look after because their life is full of headaches yeah. as well. So, you know what I mean? It sort of perpetuates. Are you yeah. getting the right person to look after? And yeah. A good property manager, as we all know, is worth their weight in gold. Yeah. I mean, it's not typically when things are going fine, it's not when you really want to test them out. It's when something goes wrong that mm. the, the good property manager's uh, colours will shine through. And that's one of the benefits of obviously buying a good property firstly, right? If you buy a good property in a highly desirable area, it's you know presents really well, it's got great floor plan, you know, it's in good condition – you know, you throw that on realestate.com.au or domain um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, as someone who's looking to rent in the area, you know, you can kind of think through, think it through and they're going through and they're looking at photos of property and yours pops up, mm. you know, yours is going to be the one they want, right? And, you know, yep. and then when you go to the open home, you're the one with three or four applications. And even in a market where it's quite tough, you still get a tenant, you still get multiple applications yep. and then you can still pick, you know, who you want to rent your property out to. But when you're in a position where you're not, you know, you've got a property that's not presenting very well, you may get one application, you may get none, and you sometimes just got to take whoever it is. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so you don't even, and you're just hoping for the best. Yeah, yeah, and that's and there's, there's a real risk of that. So, I mean, and that's probably one thing with some of the older style apartments these days because tenants look at things very differently from a, an investor. So mm. they tenants are very much focused on the improvements, the kitchen, the bathroom, yep. the air conditioning, that sort of thing. Yeah, so it's particularly important with the older style apartments that, investors do continue to maintain them yeah. and keep them up to standard because a property, sorry, a tenant is going to be far more open to considering a, a modern type apartment versus an older type apartment. They're not so concerned about um, the number of apartments within the building, that sort of thing that an investor might be. So bear that in mind that just because you as the investor wants to have the right property that's going to perform from a capital growth perspective, the tenant's going to be far more interested in 
what's the kitchen look like? What's the bathroom look like? Do I have a, a an, an air conditioner? And if I've got those things, then I'm happy to either be on a main road or I'm happy to be around the corner. Mm. Um, there's Which, just different requirements. Yeah, there's not the loyalty. But, but there's also, that is a danger, a bit of a trap for investors to fall into as well because, you know, they think, okay, well, I want to buy brand new because the yep. tenant will like it. And yep. it's like... Yes, That's and then what happens mind. when it's not brand new anymore? And what happens when the building next door's newer and shinier than yours? And the one after that, and the one after that, and 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 it's that sort of the next stage that we all need yeah. to remember. It's not just now. No, that's right. And mm. that's, there's a common thread these days that people are thinking very much now rather than the future mm. and forward planning and looking at those sorts of things. I mean, a good way to do that is go to an open home of a building that's five years old. And, you know, to rent it out one weekend and see how much it's aged, yep. how much the, all the, you know, the, all the timber and the kitchen's getting old and, yep. you know, a lot of these new yeah. properties, it's not um, you know, I've rented one before and, uh, you know, it was only three years old, like this thing was falling, falling apart, you know, and a lot of these new properties, they're not made to last because, you know, building warranty is not meant to last. Um, I mean, talk I'm, about those modern apartments too, though, but when they... Because they quite often, when they have been purchased by a large majority of investors, they hit the market all at the same time because mm, the development yep. completed at the same yep. time. I had um, some some family friends that uh, that basically they were looking to lease an apartment in a modern complex, and they walked in, and the property manager basically said, "You choose which one you'd like. <laughs> They're all there, yeah, um, and put put an offer forward, and we'll mm. go from there." I'll so go it's for the one on the highest floor, please. Yeah, and, and then... I'll have the and I'll <laughs> be paying the, the least amount of rent I need to. And because there were so many to choose from, the, um, whatever. The landlords are basically saying, yeah, well, whatever you can get, I'll take. Mm. So there's new tenancy laws in Victoria, which, you know, uh, I think are a good thing. Um, and, you know, they're giving more rights to tenants and they're encouraging, you know, more, a better relationship with tenants and, and vendors. Can you tell us a bit more about them and, you know, how they're affecting investors? Yeah, there's a, the interesting one is probably the one that's gathered the most coverage has probably been around pets um, and, and the fact that it will be, uh, that there's the likelihood that they'll be allowed to have pets no matter what. I mean, given that um, pets are becoming, particularly dogs, cats, that sort of thing, are becoming such a um, staple in people's lives. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think I think it's it's not a bad thing. Yeah, the risk is from an investor's perspective, I guess, is that are they going to be um, damaging your property at all in terms of uh, in terms of looking after them and uh, whether it's scratching floorboards, if it's an inside animal, that sort of thing. Um, but providing that uh, the appropriate checks and things are done, the monitoring's done by the property manager to make sure everything's retained and things, I don't see it um, as being a bad thing. It's probably more the, the longer term leases and things that perhaps have a bit more, uh, if that ever comes into play, whereby there's a, a need or a, a requirement to have more than a 12-month lease, I think that's when it starts to become a little bit uh, of an issue because if you've got a, a two-year lease in place and something goes wrong and you need to sell your property, mm. um, with a two-year lease in place, we talked before about multifaceted demand where you can pretty much rule out any owner-occupier yeah. uh, because they're not yep. going to be prepared to wait two years to be able to move in. It's very true and I've come across a few properties recently with long leases that, that's really impacted on their ability to mm. sell. And it comes back to making good decisions in the first place and, right. and having good goals and understanding yep. cash flows and all of that mm. stuff that, that sits behind making good property decisions yep. um, that you're less likely to be in a situation where something like that happens. Um, you know, what else has the tenancy laws, you know, what else has changed? Um, I, to be quite honest with you, I haven't looked as deeply into it in recent times. I was having a discussion with my father about it recently. He sits on uh, the VCAT panel in Victoria so and does it sits with residential tenancies. So the um, so your dad's in the business. He is. He, uh, <laughs> and he, um, he does uh, 
travels around country Victoria doing a lot of that. So that's um, that's always interesting to get mm. some insights in mm. that space. But that his his opinion certainly was that 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 space was uh, the um, the the pet one was was certainly going to be the greatest mm. impact. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you should be able to refuse a Great Dane in a one bedroom apartment well, or like something. To think so, but but um, maybe you can't. No, I don't know. I, not that's not my understanding. Is that the, it's it's a fairly blanket pet, right. tenant, tenants yeah. are now or whether it's been approved. Or not, but tenants are allowed to have yeah. pets, and that's so. Yeah, you would like to think that it's going to be realistic, but I mean, they may not have the Great Dane on the uh, the day of signing. They may get the Great Dane six months into buy it the, lease. the next day, mm. or they buy a puppy and they don't realise it gets that big. Mm. I um, it's funny because I've always kept that te- that pet thing in my back pocket as a a way in which you can actually increase the appeal of your property. Mm. Um, so you know, a couple of times. We've, houses that I've had over the years that I've known that, you know, for instance, if I had a bit of a daggy bathroom, needed a bit of an upgrade, but you make it pet friendly and then people don't care about the bathroom because they can have their dog there. That's a really good um, idea. And yeah. so that's going to be that little advantage yep. will be gone. Yeah. You'll have to renovate your bathroom. <laughs> you know, that's, that, that's a, that's a good, uh, it's, it's not a bad technique to use. And I think long leases, I do think they're going to come more and more as part of the conversation. You know, there's more and more people who are forced out of home ownership. You yep. have to rent long-term you know, realize that maybe they don't, can't afford to li- rent, live in the area they really want to. So they're going to rent long-term yep. and invest elsewhere and things like that. Well, I guess if it stops you, if it gives you that sort of permanence and security and it stops you buying a $150,000 block of land out, where did you yep. say, Melton? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and I shouldn't, I actually personally know nothing about Melton. I'll put that declaration out there right now. I'm going with what you guys are saying. But, you know, if it gives you that sense of security around your living arrangements and takes that pressure off buying property at any cost, yeah. then it's got to be a good thing. Yeah, and I think from an investor's point of view, right, you just want a tenant. You want a good tenant, obviously. Mm. This is the hard thing with a long lease. You're signing a long, a long lease committing. with someone who I haven't really tested and not sure if they're a good tenant yet. Yeah. You know, maybe if they've been there for six months, then you're happy to sign a five-year lease. And you try before you buy effectively. Yeah, <laughs> but it's hard if you don't really know the person, yeah. even with good references to mm. say, I'm happy to give it to you for five years yeah. because to kick you out, if they keep paying the rent, then it's hard to kick them out. It's very hard to, to move a tenant on. Yeah. Um, so, and, and that's that's fine. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, they, they do. Tenants absolutely have rights and they should be able to um, feel confident and comfortable within their own homes. Um, and, be, and that's how, that, how it should be treated. I guess it's just making sure that... Um, with the, from an investor's point of view, that you're able to still, if you get put in a position and, and it's, you'd say, well, I'm going to put all the plans in place that I'm going to be able to afford to make these repayments for five years and this is going to work, but life can change and it can change very quickly. And mm. if you need to be able to, um, to sell a property for whatever, for whatever reason, whether it be health or changing circumstances, um, you need to be able to do that. And, and a, a long-term lease could um, inhibit the, the ability to get the strongest price. Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree. Like the big risk for the investor is I sign this five-year lease, which is great because I know for the next five years, this person's going to stay mm. there. Yep. You know, you might make an agreement to go up with in inflation. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, you know, because it's it, like good, good investors understand that it's not about just maximizing the rent to the nth degree yep. to get the extra $10 a week because you've got to pay extra tax on that anyway. Yep. You know, what you really want is a good tenant and you want a good tenant to pay on time. Keep them happy and hopefully they stay as long as they can. Yep. Yep. And when they move out, then you adjust the market rent, yeah. et cetera. Yep. Um, so a lot of, you know. Sometimes in- rents go down. So <laughs> sometimes you've got a good tenant in there and you're actually doing better by having that tenant there. Good quality tenant. I'd much prefer to have a, a good quality tenant who looks after my property and um, and pays rent on time uh, and, and sacrifice $20, $30 a Same week rent. Mm. But do a lot of property managers say that? You know, a lot of property managers, they want to, 
kind of push the rent up a little bit, you know, and A, because they're incentivized too, because, you know, they get paid more as a percentage. Oh, yeah, but it's a piss weak percent. It's a tiny percentage. I know, I agree. But then B, it's, you know, then there's a releasing fee and, you know, it's a churning of the book and things like that. You know, my experience, I think great property managers don't, you know, they know that they're a good tenant, but... They're probably, I mean, I think a good property manager will make slight increases, particularly if the market's changed in that period of time. Yeah. Um, because you, you don't want your rent to start to fall too far behind market levels. Right. I think it's worth reflecting the relationship. And if you've got a good tenant, letting them know that they are valued and keeping it slightly below market because they're looking after things. But if it starts to fall too far behind and you've got a lease in place and, or for whatever reason you want to sell the property and the rent is significantly mm. below market, then that can impact on things as well. So, But also there's a hardship um, element there too. If you did end up wanting to then sort of bring it closer to market rent at any point and the actual increase is too high, exactly. it's viewed as, well, that's a hardship on the tenant. So you actually shoot yourself in the foot, mm. Um, mm. particularly if that is a long-term tenant. So keeping it, I think keeping it within, within reasons yeah. is, is sensible. Um but I agree, Chris, in that you you don't want to be um, just pushing it up and pushing it up and pushing it up for the sake of it. You're much better off maintaining a relationship with your tenant and, and keeping them on side, particularly if they're looking after things for you. Although I, it, what is interesting is that the property managers that, that I, or my property manager and also, you know, many that we deal with, the more proactive ones will say at every year as the lease is coming up to, uh, to expiring that, look, I want to re sign I want to get a new lease signed so they keep the tenants under lease all the time and so and obviously there's a let fee in it for them and I was a little cynical about that initially but I but I have you know there's two two ways of looking at this thing well there's great revenue generation for them Um, but at the same time there is protection for me as an owner by by doing that as well so it's but I do see a lot of agents you know the older school property managers that don't do that you know, and that, and that, let it go and yeah, let it they go. let it go. Yeah. And it's often, you can really see the difference in the actual property usually too, in yeah. terms of everything that they do and all their maintenance and all their attention to those sorts of issues tends to be as slack. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, so what, in terms of Melbourne right now, what are some of the areas that, you know, you guys love and, you know, around say, let's say a million dollar price point? Um, I think uh, some of uh, some of the inner northern suburbs, from a housing perspective, are, are really good in that part of the in that price bracket. So suburbs like Brunswick, um, Kensington, and Flemington over in the northwest, uh, Ascot Vale, southern sections of say Mooney Ponds uh, around Puckle Street, uh, and on the border of Ascot Vale, there are quite good. You can go down into Seddon and Yarraville. Um, some of the in the inner western suburbs there are quite good as well. Um, and how many k's from the city are these? They're typically within sort of six or seven kilometres, depending on how far out you go. I mean, if you can the get in the line? tram and train, mm. yeah. So if you and then you can go a little bit further north too. Some of the some sections of Coburg in the inner northern suburbs are, are fantastic. There can be some really good consistent streetscapes there that, that work well. Preston as well, um, but those are the there's some some really good options in there. And for a million dollars in there now, um, you can you can still get a good quality two bedroom cottage terrace house and if you wanted to go out into the eastern suburbs the villa units are a good option in suburbs like Camberwell, um, Surrey Hills, Montalbert, um, down to Murrumbina, Carnegie, those sorts of areas and there'll be sub a million dollars sort of between 800 and a mil uh, in, in, in those areas. The, the thing with the villa units and in particularly the eastern suburbs because you're probably that little bit further out in terms of a step out in terms of distance from the city, um, just make sure from, from that perspective that you're still relatively close to public transport and, and uh, the local village because mm. Melbourne's um, public transport system does fan out, obviously, the further out you get. So there can be some little black spots where perhaps public transport isn't quite as good. Yeah. Um, and if it's yeah. for an investor, 
um, a tenant rightly will have the expectation that they'll be relatively close yeah. to those sorts of services. And that's where you'll create extra demand too, if it comes from a resale point of view. I mean, that's a really good point around the fan, um, you know, because I think sometimes clients who are buying in the kind of the middle rings and they're buying homes and mm. they want to, you know, they, they sometimes kind of, they, they fall in love with the place, yep. um, you know, how it looks or how it feels. And, you know, they start to, there's now no longer as, as important to be so close to the train. Mm. And so the train or the getting close to transport kind of goes out the window yep. because they love the property or how it looks. Um, and then they don't realize that the livability or the actual access yeah. to the city really declines. And, yep. you know, you, if, you, if you have to get a bus to the train and then you have to get the train to the city, um, you know, two stages, that's two things you've got to be stressed about every morning <laughs> that, does one, um, does one not meet up with the other one? Yeah, in terms of yeah. extra time, just yep. the, the, the lag in between the two, you know, the connections. That's right. And I think people mm. do think that, you know, they go, well, I can get the bus to the to the train station and I'll get the train to work. But, you know, it's not the same and as just walking five minutes. <laughs> no, and no. Agents, no, exactly and right. agents will say that too. They'll say, oh, it's nice, really easy then. You know, the, the 412 runs there and then you just pick up the train. <laughs> you just go, oh, yeah, it's really easy. There's like 20 minutes waiting yeah, between in, in them between or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Jared, can you please give us a property dumbo? I've got, at the moment, we're, um, we're looking to... I've, I've had to sell a few properties in recent times with off-the-plan um, apartments that have been purchased um, by clients. Uh, you guys um, sell as well as buy, do you? We do vendor advisory work, yeah. Right, right, so yep. helping to sell um, helping to sell um, assets. Do we say sell or offload? <laughs> well, we call it dispose. <laughs> right, and, um, yeah. and so typically it's more often than not, it's clients that we've bought properties for and they're getting to a point where they need to realise that asset. But we right. do help with um, ones that we haven't purchased and need to be sold as well. So they've come to you already owning property yeah. and you've sat with them and said, right, you can't it, hold this there's anymore. some of this stuff you've got to get rid we of. Need to, we need yep, to sell yep. this. And so that's the sort of thing. That's the property. That's probably mm. the dumbo that, that we're experiencing a bit at the moment. And people are probably realising that. It comes back to what you mentioned earlier, Chris, about um, people realising, starting to have those um, incidents where they haven't, um, had, well, they've had properties that have not performed well. They've given them time to perform and they've yeah. actually gone backwards over what should be a reasonable period of time. Oh, it's really sad. It is it? sad. Yeah. And it's, and it's, give us some numbers of some examples of some properties that you've seen and um, not actually addresses, obviously, but just some ideas. Some of, case studies. Yeah. I had one in um, Abbotsford. Um, this was in, a few years ago, but it's probably the easiest one to, to compare to. Um, bought for $460,000 off the plan. We took, I think, three or four years to be constructed and then 12 months of living in that property. So it was around a five-year turnaround. Um, bought for 460, sold for 425. Oh. Yeah. Um, and that's, that is by no means... Um, no, no, it's very, very common. Um, people do well if they get their money back, um, but it's far more common for it to be a 5%, 10% drop over that sort of period of time. Yeah, and even if they do get their money back, there's the buying costs, the selling costs, the holding costs. Yeah. The opportunity cost. Yes. You know, stack them all up, all the costs yeah. that they've lost out on a very, very expensive... Uh, exercise and mistake. Yeah. Horrible. Sad. Yeah, and the difference between if they just bought a house, you know, up the road for 500 yep. um, 
you know, and that's now worth a million or 900. Oh, no. Like it's, it's pretty, it's pretty scary. It can be gut wrenching. I mm. think for a lot of investors, if, if you don't believe the numbers, the numbers are all there. They know? are there. And, uh, you know, if you, as soon as you start go digging around kind of off the plans and new apartments, um, you know, you can have all these people amazing promising the world, but they haven't got the numbers to stack it up. Yeah. And, you know, I've asked many kind of people who sell off the plan and, and you know, to, to show me some examples. Show me some examples where they've gone really well yep. um, that aren't new kind that, of high that rises. That isn't just because the rest of the market went up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it is my mm. biggest fear in Sydney right now is is the off-the-plan market because I think in Melbourne and Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth, everywhere else, the, a lot of these apartments have really struggled yep. and they've just gone sideways. Yeah. But in Sydney in the last five years, because there was such an influx of investors and way too many investors for amount of apartments on the market. Yep. Every single apartment, every single property has gone up. Yep. And no matter how good it is or where it is, um, and a lot of these, you know, off the plan apartments have done on paper, are done okay. They haven't done as good as what they should compared to everything else. Well, people yep. don't compare. They don't benchmark. They don't, you know, they say, oh, I've made money, so that's enough. And it's like, it is not enough, uh, you know. One were... of the other factors that come into play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think too, I think in Sydney we do definitely have some danger zones brewing. We've already talked about oversupply in certain areas, but it hasn't translated into the data, into, you know, into the actual resales yet. Yeah. But there are certain areas where, you know, we're going to see similar stats as you've seen in Melbourne and yep. Brisbane. I have no doubt about it. Just so steer clear. Anywhere you see lots and lots and lots and lots of cranes, guys, don't buy, don't be buying Worry. them. Yep. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So look, Jared, thank you so much for your time today. The insights you've been giving us into Melbourne and certainly me, I, you know, we came down and, and we filmed down here a number of different episodes. And so it's bringing up memories of, of yeah, actually great. buying property down here. But, um, and I do joke about Sydney being more livable. It's it's got better climate and it's got a harbour. But to be quite frank, I do love Melbourne. So the insights you've given are great. And um, how can people find out more about you? Uh, you can certainly have a look on our website, which is uh, wakeland.com.au uh, and our, or contact the office on 9859-9595. Thank you. What we'll do, we'll have that uh, link on the show notes and um, any other resources you might want to Flick our way, sure. we'll, we'll pop in there too so our listeners can access that if they want to get a bit more of an insight into what you can assist with, I guess, and, and information from, from your research in terms of Melbourne. Perfect. No problems at all. Thanks, Jared. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. It's been great. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is... One thing that Jared mentioned, which is a term that... Um, piqued my interest was multifaceted demand. And it is a really important thing that investors need to be aware of. And, and look, owner occupies as well, because fundamentally your home is also an investment. But the multifaceted demand, and he was referring to, was making sure that there's a lot of different types of buyers at any one time that would be interested in this property. And a lot of people, when they're buying an investment, they don't want competition because they fear paying too much. But you do want it in one regard, and this is the regard. You want to make sure there are plenty of other types of buyers who would want to buy that property for the similar sort of money. Now, some of the aspects are you want to make sure the owner-occupiers are different types, and he listed off first home buyers, downsizers, um, investors, also people who want a city base, all those sorts of different types of buyers that might be interested in a property. Also, one of the things that I would add is that you want to make sure that whatever property you're buying is in a popular price bracket. 
Now, if you imagine a bell curve, you want to be looking in the middle of the bell curve where the majority of buyers are spending their money. So just think of that bell curve and think about the most popular price brackets as one of the aspects of multifaceted demand that it's important for investors to look for when they're buying a property. Tune in to our next episode. We have a very special guest, Stephen Kukulis, better known as the Kook. He's an economist straight from Canberra. And I mean, quite literally, he got off the plane from Canberra and came into the studio. We got an amazing insight into what drives policy in this country. And bigger than that, looking at the absolute mechanics and all the different levers that get pulled and played with and tweaked that drive our economy and the sorts of things that ultimately impact on the property market. Really, really, really interesting interview. Please join us. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.